0: Well, good morning, guys. Try that again. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. Happy Easter, everyone. So glad that you are all with us this morning. So glad we could be spending this time celebrating the resurrection together. Uh, A great time, a great opportunity that we get to do uh, this Sunday, but also just every single Sunday celebrating the resurrection is a great thing. So one of the things that we do every single week together, as before we dive into our our time of study, is we just have a moment of silence, uh, a time to pray, uh, because all of us are coming in here with things that are on our mind, things are on our heart. There's not this magical eraser that wipes these things all out of our thoughts as soon as we walk through the door. We all have these things, and sometimes they can be things that distract us and keep us away from hearing what God has to say. So we're just gonna have 30, 45 seconds uh, chance to, to pray. So I encourage you to, to pray for yourself. Pray that God would speak to you in a way maybe that he never has before. Then pray for the person next to you, that God would speak to them and that you would not be a distraction to them or that God would just move in their hearts. And then if you would pray for me, uh, that I would be able to bring the message that, that God has prepared this morning and that you will see through me. It's not my words, but, but hear his words. And then I'll just close this in prayer. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we thank you for these times we have just to pause and to, to pray. God, to have these moments of silence to, to talk to you. And Lord, as we, we, as we sang as the start, Christ is risen today, our only response is hallelujah, hallelujah, praise God. We're just so grateful for the day that we get to celebrate your victory over sin and death and walking out of the grave. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that you're with us here over the next few minutes as we lean into your word. Lord, I pray that your your word will move us, God. It will work in our hearts. It's my prayer, as it is every single week, that not a single one of us leave here unchanged this morning. That we allow your word to transform us, to change us, to, to completely alter the trajectory, the direction of our lives. And Lord, I just pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart will be glorifying to you. You are my rock. You are my redeemer. And Lord, we thank you for who you are. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, about five years ago, Tiffany, my wife, and I, we went to, we went to Italy for the first time. And while we were in Italy, we decided that we were, gonna, we were in Rome. And when in Rome, kinda, like, you kind of have to go to Vatican City, right? You got to make your way to the Sistine Chapel and see the beautiful pictures of it. And here's the thing. I am not an art guy. Like, I don't really know a lot of art. I don't know a lot of things about it. But there was one picture on the Sistine Chapel that I knew was going to be there. And this is, this is it right? This is the most iconic, one of the most iconic pictures of all time. This is God reaching down to give life to Adam. So most art scholars believe that this is the most recognizable, this is the most duplicated picture of all time. And if you walk around Italy, walk around Rome, almost anywhere in, in Italy, you are going to see this picture on like Everything You're going to see it on, on shirts, on socks, on mugs, on playing cards, on postcards, on posters. Like this picture, it is everywhere. And so as I walked in and we saw this picture, I was just like, that was amazing. This is what I was expecting. However, I don't know if you're familiar with the Sistine Chapel. It's not just this picture. So when we walked in and we saw the entire ceiling, I was just in awe. Like I knew the, the picture of, of God giving life to Adam. I was not prepared for the 341 other pictures, other figures that were up on this 500 square meter ceiling. I wasn't prepared for this. And when I began to, to just look at this, like I was just in awe. Like literally at one point, i like got ready to try to put my head down and it was so stiff because I just spent my whole t- day just like looking up at this beautiful ceiling. So the first time, as soon as we got there, Tiffany and I rushed to the Sistine Chapel and we spent like an hour just like looking around. And then we left and we were like, we should do that again. And so we ended up downloading this audio guide about the story about what was happening in the Sistine Chapel. And so we go back in for another hour and we just look at the ceiling again. And there's just this moment of just like this all inspiring moment. And here's the thing. If we would have just seen God giving life to Adam, it would have been cool. It's an amazing picture. But when you see it in its full context, when you see it in everything else, all the other pictures on this ceiling, like it is just, it's breathtaking. It's amazing. It's hard to even comprehend. And this is what we've been doing in this series. We've been taking a time to, to not just focus in on one picture of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. As amazing as that picture might be, we've been looking at the entire ceiling. We've been looking at seeing, let's look at the whole, the whole collection of everything that Jesus has done for us. And here's the thing, we've covered seven ideas. There are more in the Bible. Like we could go through more of these, but the seven that we've discussed is, we've talked about the new Passover and the new Exodus. We've discussed blood sacrifice. We've talked about the ransom and adoption. We talked about the great judgment. One of my favorites is the Christus victor. And I love this one because Jesus is, it's not the Christus battler or the Christus fighter. It's the victor, that Jesus is victorious over sin and death. We talked about last week, we discussed substitution. Because here's the reality. The ceiling's pretty great, right? But... What Jesus accomplished on the cross is the most all-inspiring thing in history. This is what I believe with everything in me. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is the most all-inspiring thing in history. And so, the, the idea that we're going to focus in on today comes from Hebrews chapter two, verses fourteen through seventeen. So, if you want to, ha- if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and flip there. It's Hebrews two, verses fourteen through 17 here's what the writer of hebrews says he says because god's children are human beings made of flesh and blood the son also became flesh and blood for only a human being for only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death only in this way could he set free all who lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying he also, And also, know, we also know that the Son did not come to help angels, but He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for Him to be made in every respect like us, His brothers and sisters, so that He could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then He could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. So uh, here's, the, here's the theological word for you. It's recapitulation or the idea of identification for a corporation. And I'm sure all of you are like, okay, great, I understand now. If you're anything like me, okay, let's, let's like, when I read that, my eyes kind of glass over a little bit. So in essence, here's, here's, the, here's the idea. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. That's, that's the idea. This is what we're talking about. This is what we are discussing today. This is, this is what we are. And so this week, a few weeks ago, I, I got on my social media and I just asked the question, asking people, what did they want to be? Who did they want to be like when they grew up? And, and there were some serious answers and those were good, but I, I was really fond of the funny answers. I was hoping for some of the funny ones and I was not disappointed. Um, some people said Iron Man. I mean, who doesn't want to be Tony Stark when they grow up? Um, one, of the, one of my friends said they uh, wanted to be the dad from Bluey. Uh, Mikey the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle my mom growing up all of my life she wanted to be a wiggle like I don't know if you guys know the kids show the wiggles my mom would have made an awesome wiggle but that was her desire that's what she wanted to be growing up people wanted to be Indiana Jones Rocky Wonder Woman like these were some people that these are some things that people wanted to be my favorite answer was there was one girl growing up she wanted to be the ham girl at Subway but only the ham girl. She wanted to be the person that would put the ham on the sandwiches, but that was the only thing that she wanted to do. And that's the only thing she wanted to be. I don't really know if that's a thing, but apparently that's what she wanted. I also asked my daughter Ava a few months ago, Ava, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she told me she wanted to be a unicorn. Can't argue with that, right? Like, aim big. Um, but as I was just thinking about like, what we wanted to be when we grew up, I was thinking about my childhood. And when I was growing up, I have a, I, I'm a big baseball fan. And my favorite team was called the Atlanta Braves. And they had this player, his name was Javi Lopez. Javier, if you're feeling fancy. But Javi Lopez was the catcher. And so he was the one who would catch the ball when the pitcher would throw it. And he had to wear all the gear and all this stuff. And because of the team I was playing for at the time, I was a catcher. So every time I would watch a game, I would go put all of my catcher's gear on. And I would like do everything that Javi Lopez would do. If he had to dive for a ball, I'd be in the living room and I'd dive for a ball. If he wouldn't drop down to his knees to block a ball, I would drop down on my knees and block the ball. I'd pretend to throw the ball back to the pitcher. I would actually have a real ball. Mom took that away, said you can pretend. Um, But like, this is, I would just follow through. Every time I was watching it, when it was his turn to bat, I'd take all the catcher's gear on and I'd stand in front of the TV. Once again, she took the bat away. But I'd stand in front of the TV, like I just wanted to be just like him. That's what I wanted to do. And so maybe you have these things that you wanted to be like. You had this idea, maybe when you were young, this picture of what, what you were supposed to be. As we open up the pages of the Bible, on page one of the Bible, what we find is that God created mankind in His image And in his likeness, there is a vision, there is a a plan for what human beings were meant to be like. What we were supposed to look like when God created us, he stamped us with his identity and said, this is who you are to be like. Our lives were meant to reflect that of him. So we were created to be image bearers of God. This is the image that we bear. We were created to to be able to show the world what he was like. So when people see us, when people see the way that we live, when people see us, they should see, they should see God. And we make it to four pages in the scriptures until that's all screwed up. We make it to page four before Adam and Eve come and they, they do something that God never did. They sin, they rebel. They don't keep their end of the covenant perfectly. And from the moment, from the moment that sin entered the world, humanity has been yearning. Humanity has been groaning. Humanity has been longing for renewal. They've been waiting. We've been waiting for someone to come and do what Adam failed to do. We've been waiting for someone to come do what is perfectly, to show us how to perfectly and truly be human. Someone not contaminated by sin. We have been waiting. The world has been waiting for the true and the better. Enter Jesus. So as we walk through the scriptures, we see from, from Adam to Abraham, to David, to Israel. All of these different people began and they tried to reflect the image of God, but they failed to do so. The people who were meant to speak for God, they fall short. The people who are meant to show the world what God is like, they don't quite do it. And so what happens is, as a result of our sin, we have become tainted image bearers. As the result of our sin and our rebellion. We have become tainted image bearers. A few weeks ago, I introduced this idea from Scott McKnight's book, A Community Called Atonement of of Cracked Icons. So, when God created us and making us up in His own image, He made us in His image and we look like Him. We're this icon that looks like Him. And because of our sin, we've been cracked, we've been tainted. We, we, people don't begin to see God as clearly as he should. Think about this. When you don't forgive your neighbor, people see God in a different way. When we choose to be greedy and care only for ourselves, we are tainted image of what God is. We are tainted image bearer. When we struggle with, with lying or with lust or, or whatever it may be, we are tainted image bearers. We no longer truly reflect that of the Father. Anybody, a few of us wear wear glasses in here, so maybe you've experienced this, even with sunglasses. Like, this this will happen from time to time. So I wear contacts about 90% of the time. The other 10% of the time, I wear glasses. And almost always, when my glasses are sitting on the table, my kids grab my glasses, and they always, like, they leave that little smudge. And it's never, like, on the side of the glasses, it's always right in the middle, right? And so you go and you put them on, and as hard as you try, you can't really see clearly. Something has to happen. You have to take the glasses off. You've got to clean the smudge and to put them back on, right? This is what happens with us. We're another metaphor. We use metaphors all the time, but we're the, we're the smudge, right? Our, our, the, the smudge on the glasses, we, we're this tainted image now. We just don't quite see things as clearly as they were meant to. And so when God raises up a people, for himself. When he brings out a nation to the people, he he meets this guy Abraham. and He says, out of Abram, out of Abraham, I'm going to bring the the people of my, my people. And God makes this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham's descendants, they're the people of Israel. It does not take us long at all to read through, the book of, read through the Bible to realize that Israel did a terrible job at blessing the nations. Right? Like, it does not take us long at all. Take the book of Judges for example. Judges 1 and 2, we just see this constant time of Israel. They turn away from God, they're rebellious, and then the whole world, everything is starting to fall apart. Then they cry out to God. It takes them 8, 18, 20 years respectively to actually cry out to God. They've made a mess of things, and we're not much better. We're not much better at being a huge blessing to the world. And so what Adam failed to do What Abraham failed to do, what David failed to do, what the people of Israel failed to do, the descendant of Abraham who was truly to be the blessing of the world, he did not fail. And Jesus did what all of us have failed to do. Jesus was the true and the better Adam. He's the true and the better Abraham. He's the true and the better David. He's the true and the better Israel. He is the perfect embodiment of God. And so as we open up the scriptures together, one of the things that we're going to see as we're reading the Bible is the authors of the Bible are absolutely brilliant. And they they link this Bible back to itself. So every once in a while when you're reading through the scriptures, maybe you start thinking, hey, that story sounds like another story over here. It's probably because it's meant to. Because the Bible, it will link back to itself. It's almost like it's putting footnotes or, or threads all throughout the Bible, the way that it begins to, to link to itself. And one of the ways we see this is in Matthew chapter 4. We see one of these moments in Matthew, Matthew 4. So as we open up together, we're, we're going to see a few links back to the, the story of Israel. Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2 it says this. So just the, just the context of what's happening. Jesus has come. John the Baptist has prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus has been baptized, and then this leads us into the moment in Matthew four, verse one and two. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil for forty days and forty nights. He fasted and became very hungry. So as you read this, maybe you're like, hey. That story sounds familiar. There should be some bells and whistles that start going off in our mind, like, wait, I I know this story. That this story seems to connect to another story that we've read not long ago, the story of Israel. So there's actually four different ways that we can see that this story links back to the story of Israel. First, it says that from Jesus, he was led by the spirit. We find in the story of Israel in Exodus 13 that they are led by by God, by the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. So it's a connection. The idea of the wilderness. This is where Jesus is led, to the wilderness. Where does Israel spend time wandering? The wilderness. 40 days. Jesus, in 40 nights, Jesus is in the wilderness. How long is Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. So we start to see there's these connections that begin to happen. Then probably the greatest understatement of the Bible is this last statement, he became very hungry. You think? 40 days of fasting, sure, he's hungry. But this idea of him becoming very hungry, we see this again with Israel when they are in Exodus 16. When they are beginning to starve, they're becoming hungry, and they cry out for food, and they said, we should have just stayed in Israel or Egypt, and God sends manna to sustain them. And so we start to see this story, we start to read through this account of Jesus being tempted. We're like, oh, wait, I've seen this story and as we read verses 1 and 2, we start to get an idea of where this story is probably heading because we've seen this story before. And it didn't end well with the people of Israel. But it's not only a story that's connected to Israel, it's also a story that's connected to Adam. So look at verse, five, or verse 3, it says this. It says, During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of Man, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. So just like Adam and Eve, the devil shows up and he starts speaking some half-truths to someone. He starts trying to, trying to convince them to circumvent God's good will. He starts trying to convince them to believe half-truths. He starts tempting the people. And so as we read this, we're like, okay, Israel, wilderness 40, that ended poorly. Adam and Eve tempted, that ended poorly. And so we start to think, okay, probably that's the way that this story is going to go but Jesus is the true and the better Adam. Jesus is the true and better Israel. So that is not the way that this story goes. So we see in verses five through seven, there's this temptation that happens. And I think this is really powerful is that Satan actually uses scripture to try to tempt Jesus. It's this half truth. In Genesis chapter three, when Satan is tempting Adam and Eve, it's a half truth that he uses to try to to convince them. We find it fascinating, I find it fascinating, that every single time Jesus is tempted, he answers with what? With, the, with scriptures. Not just any scripture. He, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy every single time. Why is that fascinating? Because as we read, here's just a nerd note for you, okay? This is my nerdy self. Is the book of Deuteronomy is there? Do you know why it's there? Because the people of, of Israel, the people who have exited Egypt, they screwed up and they messed up and they are all dying off. They are all dead. And now Moses is in the book of Deuteronomy. He's retelling the story. He's inviting them into the story that this people of Israel was supposed to be in. So the book of Deuteronomy is there because Israel screwed up. And so here we are. Jesus is quoting this book of this new, from this given to these new people who are meant to carry God's image. He's using that book to withstand Satan. And the final temptation that we see that he throws at him is verses 8 and 9. I think this is important for us. It says this, the next, next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. So Jesus is tempted with a kingdom. This is what Satan is throwing at him. He's like, hey, you could be king over all the world. He knows what Jesus has come to do. He knows the point. And he's trying to throw this temptation at Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus, he turns away from temptation. He withstands temptation. And he later becomes crowned king of the Jews. A little different than we might think. It's not a luxurious crown that's put on his head, but it's a crown of thorns that he's put on his head as he goes to a cross with a title over his cross saying, King of the Jews. And then a powerful bit of irony, Satan tells Jesus, you can have all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. In Philippians 2, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on earth and under the earth. So Satan says, Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all this. And Jesus is like, no, bro, you're going to bow down and worship me as the true king. And this is what we begin to see so this is one of the first times that we see in the scriptures during Jesus's life that he defeats temptation, that he defeats Satan. And it won't be the last. And this is the story, though. As we read through the Gospels constantly, Jesus is pushing back against the power of Satan. Every single time he heals someone, every single demon possession, that he, every single demon he cast out, he's pushing about against the darkness of Satan. He's defeating him once and for all, and he does so on the cross. But we see this continual theme is that Satan tries to throw everything he can at Jesus, trying to do everything he can to get him to fall in, to give in to temptation, and Jesus withstands it. And he defeats it. And there's a really interesting story about this in in John chapter 13. In John 13, we see that Satan pulls out all the stops to try to get Jesus off this mission that God has called him to. He tries to get him to do these things that he wasn't supposed to do. He tries to get him to do like Adam and Eve who circumvented God's good plan for their own desires. He tries to get Jesus to circumvent God's plan for him. We see this with the story of Judas. So in verse, chapter 13 of John, verse 2, it says this. It was supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. The story continues in verse 27. It says this. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus t- told him, hurry and do what you are going to do. I don't want us to miss the progression here. First, Satan prompts Judas. Later, Satan enters Judas. I think that's really significant for us. And so this word prompt, in the the Greek, it's this word balo. And it's a really fascinating word. It's a word that can actually be translated to, to let drop and allow gravity to do its work. And so as we begin to think about that idea, what Satan is doing to Judas is he is looking for the temptations in his life. He is pushing on those buttons that he knows his temptations, he knows his sinful nature, and he is just pushing at those and letting gravity do its work. It's the same thing he does for Jesus. Like, Jesus is hungry. What's the first temptation? Turn these, turn these bread into stone, or turn these stones into bread. The second temptation is... You could be thrown off, and they're not going to let you fall because you're God, and you're going to be fine. They're going to protect you. So it's this—it's safety that he's tempting him with. The well, final thing is Jesus has come as king, and so he, Satan is tempting him as a, with a kingdom. And so he, he's looking, he's finding these things. And with, with, with Judas, he's pushing on these buttons and allowing gravity to do its work. And it's no wonder that this story happens immediately following the story in John chapter 12 where we find Mary who comes to Jesus and she breaks a bottle of perfume and pours it on the feet of Jesus. And Judas is indignant by this. He says that that's a year's wages. And listen to what he says in verse five. It says, that perfume was a year's wages. It should have been sold and money given to the poor. I love the way that John writes this in verse six. He says, not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. And so this is the thing. This is what Judas' issue was. Judas had this desire for money. He had this desire for more. He had this desire to just have more things. And Satan goes and he pushes that, and that's the temptation. And we have spent time talking about in this series about sin being a force. And I think this is one of the most powerful ways that we can see it here. We see it with Judas's life. It's Satan knowing his temptations, knowing his issues, knowing his... his the problems in his life, and that is what he begins to push in on. So for us, we need to humbly identify what are those areas in our lives? What are are the areas that we can allow gravity to do its work? What are those temptation areas in your life? For me, for me, it's pride and selfishness. Those are the two areas in my life. I can link almost every single sin in my life back to those two things. And so... What do I do? I constantly am on guard against that. I have some people in my life who are ready and able to call me out when they see these things begin to start bubbling up in my life because I don't want gravity to do its work. And so we see that for, for, for Judas, he, he, he falls into temptation and Satan is willing to throw everything at Jesus. And Jesus, he withstands it all. Jesus is finally the perfect human being. He shows us how to be truly human. So not only does Jesus perfectly reflect God, but as we've already talked about, he represents us to God. And so because Jesus was perfect, because he was truly the true and the better Adam, when God looks at us, if we are in Christ, he does not see our sinfulness. He does not see our rebellion. He doesn't see our mess. What he sees is the righteousness of Jesus and the goodness and the perfection of the one who truly lived to truly be human. And so what does this accomplish for us is the question. what does this accomplish? The reality is, is that we can now, again, go back to living the way that we were always created to live. We can live the life that we were made to live. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul begins to set up this contrast between Adam and Jesus. So if you want to flip in your Bibles to Romans 5, verses 12 through 19, we get a, a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus is the true and the better Adam. Romans 5, verse 12 starts this way. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is the wonder of God's wonderful gift of grace, a gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And as the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the results of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but the God's free gift leads to being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, calls death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace in this gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live and triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many are made righteous. And I just want us to see those few words of, of Adam. See what Adam brings into the world. Sin. Death, condemnation. Now let's look at Jesus. What does Jesus bring in the world? Grace, forgiveness, made right with God, righteousness, right relationship with God, new life. Let's look at verse 18 again. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings right relationship with God and new life for everyone. So let me just ask you, which one do you want? Which one do you want? Do you want death and condemnation? Do you want new life and a right relationship with God? Which one do you want? Because it is through this one man Jesus that condemnation is no longer the story of our lives. It is no longer what has hold of us anymore. This is why Paul continues on in Romans 8 verse 1. He says, so now, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I love that idea, that single word now, because at one point there was condemnation. But now because Jesus has entered the picture, now because Jesus has come, now because Jesus has rose from the dead, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, Adam messed up. But Jesus lives this out perfectly. Because of the perfect life, the sacrificial death, because of the resurrection, condemnation is finished. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's this this little moment. It's prior to the resurrection. There's there's no hope. Prior to the resurrection, there's there's no hope for our pain and our suffering and and death. And there's this little moment in the story of Job. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the story of Job. It's a bit of a downer. Not a great read, um, but there's a little moment. Job has lost everything. He's in, this, he's in physical pain. He's in agony, and he's discussing with his friends about what's happening in his life, and there's this one moment, this little glimmer of hope, this one thread that, that Job is clinging to. In Job 14, 14, he says this. He says, Can the dead live again? If so, this would give me hope through all my years of struggle. I would eagerly await the release of death. So this is what Job is hoping for. 4,000 years before Jesus proves that the dead can live again, 4,000 years ago before Jesus walks out of the grave and brings new life available to every single one of us, Job is hoping that this is the case. And now because of the resurrection, we can, we can be free. So can the dead live again because of Adam? No. Can the dead live again because of Jesus? Yes. Because Jesus came and became like us so that we could be like Him. And here's the thing, is when Jesus walks out of the grave, He makes true humanness available again. When Jesus walks out of the grave, the condemnation and the guilt and the sin, it's all left behind him, left behind with his grave clothes. We are now free to live the way we were always created for. We are now free to enjoy life in his presence and enjoy God and, and riches forevermore. We're, we're free. True humanness is now available to every single one of us again because Jesus' resurrection Back when I was a, a teenager, I got my first smartphone. And you guys have heard me talk about how I, I worked a job and had no bills, so I had a, I, a lot of money. And so I decided one time I was going to blow my money on a BlackBerry. Anybody ever have a BlackBerry? No. All right, one person. Here we go. One, one person had a BlackBerry. But they were all, two people, they were all the rage for like a week. But like, so I go and I I get this BlackBerry because you know, like I have money to burn, why not buy a BlackBerry? And I just had a flip phone at the time, like had to upgrade to something better. So I get a BlackBerry and I'm like, oh, I can get on the internet and I can check my email. Like who was emailing a 14 year old? But in my thoughts, I was like, oh yeah, that's that's what I'll do. And so I get in this, there's all these apps you could get. That was super cool. And I get the BlackBerry. And the first day that I'm on the BlackBerry, I discovered this app called Brick Breaker. It's a game. Literally, I didn't even set up my email on the phone. I didn't even figure out how to get online. All I knew is the BlackBerry had Brick Breaker. And there was all these functions, all these things that were available to me, but I'm just sitting there texting my friends like I would with a flip phone and playing Brick Breaker. Like, there was so much more that was available, but here I am, like, living is less than. And this is without Jesus. This is our lives, right? Like we live as less than. We don't live for what we were truly created for. We can't experience the life that Jesus has and wants for us. We live as less than. And so how does this change the way that we live? Jesus becoming human. Jesus being a true and better Adam. Jesus dying our death for us so that we could be raised to life again. Like how does this change the way we live? As Jesus showed us how to be truly human. And he allows us, again, to be truly human. So what do we do? We copy Jesus. One of the things you're going to hear us say here at church a lot, you probably can say this with me, is we, as a church, we want to be people who be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. This is kind of a mantra that we, that we have here at church because this is what we want to do. We want to be like Jesus. We want to do what Jesus did. We want to be with him. And so when Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan to circumvent God's good plan, they fall into temptation and they sin. And in the garden, when Jesus is tempted to circumvent God's good plan, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus doesn't fall into temptation. And Jesus has some disciples there with him. In verse 41, Jesus says, Watch and pray because the spirit is willing, but the body is is weak. And so this is our model. How do we live like Jesus? How do we do what Jesus did? This is the model. So two things we see here. We watch. We pray. We are prepared for the things that, that may be thrown our ways. We are ready. We are looking for the force of evil that's looking to attack us. The master that is looking to, to have us. We watch. We pray. We can add in Matthew 4. We read the scriptures. We don't just read the scriptures. We know the scriptures. We let them soak deeply into us so that we can can bring them out of us. But I love this statement. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. That's why as as a church, that's why as followers of Jesus, we practice spiritual disciplines because there will be moments like this moment for Jesus where our bodies are weak. And we may be tempted to circumvent God's good plan. We may want to turn away. We may want to do our walk our own way. But we practice the spiritual disciplines. Why? So that our spirits are strong. So that we are able to turn against these temptations. So we don't give in to them. So most of you know, or if, you, if you talk with me very much, I, I run a lot. And so I run almost every single day. There's a, there's a few days off throughout the year, but mostly I, I run almost every single day. And here's the thing, like for the most part, I actually enjoy running. Like it's, I know I'm weird. It's, it's, it's fun for me. I enjoy doing it. But there are some days when I just, I'm not feeling it. There are some days that I just don't want to run. There are some days I just don't want to do it. I'm tired. Maybe my legs hurt. It's a little bit yucky outside. Or like, I'm just lazy. And so there are some days I just don't want to run. But I do it anyway. Why? Because I know that I need the discipline. And it's not necessarily just as much about running for me, but it's something that's so much more because the reality is there are days when I wake up, I don't want to be very selfless to my family. There are days when I wake up that I don't want to be a generous person. There are days when I wake up that I don't want to forgive those who have wronged me. There are days when I don't want to fight against temptation, but I need the discipline and of continuing to make our spirit strong so that when our body is weak, that we are willing and able to stand against these things. And so this is what Jesus does. He has spent his life pouring into the scriptures. He has spent his life strengthening his spirit. And he's showing us, here's how we're we're human. As we begin to to be with Jesus and begin to live like him. So Jesus, he gives us freedom over sin. He gives us freedom over, over death. And he changes the way that we can live so we can truly, finally be human. One of the final passages I want us to look at is, is Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 through 11. Sorry, Romans 6, 11 through 14. Here's, here's what Paul writes. He says this. He says, So you should also consider yourself dead to the power of sin and alive through God. to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way that you live Do not give in to your sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument for evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourself completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. Use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you are no longer under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. There's two things from verse 14 that I want us to see. The first is this. It says, Sin is no longer your master. Here's the reality, church. Because of Jesus, sin has lost its power. We are free. The power that sin once held over us because Jesus walked out of the grave, it has been, it has been defeated. Jesus has stripped death. And he has stripped sin of its power. And here's the reality The devil and Satan, they can do absolutely nothing about the fact that Jesus can forgive sin. He can do absolutely nothing about that. The only thing that he can do is he can accuse you with lies. So he could say, well, you are your mistake. Or or truly, like, I I know what you were thinking and that's really who you are. Or no one could love you or God doesn't care for you anymore or whatever those lies may be. That is the only thing Satan can do because he can do absolutely nothing about the fact that Jesus can forgive sin. So he accuses us with lies, but now there is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The final thing I want us to see at the end of the passage, end of verse twelve or fourteen, it says, "Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace." Here's the reality: the freedom of grace allows us to live the way we were always made to. The grace of God, because of the resurrection. It makes us and it creates us and it allows us to live the way, the life that we were always made to live. We are free to live a life of grace. We are free to live a life of love. We are free to live a life of, of freedom. Free from sin, free from guilt, free from shame, free from all of those things. We are free to live a life that God had for us from the very beginning. The story of the Bible starts in a garden when everything is made right and perfect. The end of the Bible... The Bible ends in a garden when everything is made right and everything is perfect. The resurrection happens in a garden when God is setting all these things right and making things new. And so we live a life of freedom. We are no longer held captive by, by sin and guilt and death or, or any of these things. A couple of, couple of weeks ago, there was, a, there was a, sh- a shooting in the school in Tennessee in America and there was a, the shooter goes in and he takes the lives of three nine-year-old kids and three of their teachers. And as I was thinking and praying and crying about this situation, I was reminded of another story of another shooting in an Amish school back in 2006. So it was by this guy by the name of Charles Rogers. Charles Rogers, he and his wife, their first child was a miscarriage and he had never really gotten over it. Although now he had four healthy children, he was still angry and mad at God for this. And so he decided that he was going to take out his anger on the most vulnerable of people, the people who were close to the heart of God. So he goes into a school, shoots 10 kids, kills five of them before turning the gun on himself. Now during the the media frenzy that obviously would happen from a moment like this, the wife and the children of this man who, who took these lives had to go and hide. They went and hid at her parents' house. And the next day, two men come to the parents' house. They knock on the door, and they ask to, to see the wife. And, and the father, of course, in that moment is like really reluctant to, to allow them to see him because of what happened, These were, this was a guy who had lost two daughters in the shooting. He's there to see the wife. And so finally, the wife comes out, and he begins to talk to her, and he says, Last night, my wife and I were in bed sobbing. We were mourning, holding each other, and we were just pouring our hearts out to God. And that's when it hit me that you didn't have anyone to cry with, that you didn't have anyone to help you through this. And so he says, we want to pay for your husband's funeral cost. We want to help pay to put your kids through college and any other expenses that you incur by raising these kids on your own. So they go and they take the money that they had raised for their two daughters for college and he pays for the college of the men, for the kids, of the man who took his kid's life. And I love that. Why? Because that's what it looks like to live no longer under the triumph of evil. That's what it looks like to live under there, that sin is no longer your master. The reality is they're not getting there on their own. We're not going to be able to, to, to bring up that type of forgiveness on our own. Because of Jesus, this is the life that we can live. One that truly reflects and shows the world what God is like. Their their, their statements reminds me of what Jesus says on the cross. where He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you. And God, we confess to being tainted image bearers. God, we haven't accurately and and perfectly shown what you are like to the world. But God, we thank you for Jesus who did. And God, as we grow to become more like your son, Jesus, God, I pray that the way that we look and the way that we live, it shows a watching world what you are like. That we can reflect you to those who are around us. God, we can see by by acts of love that, that you are real you really raised and have brought new life. Lord, I thank you that we are now victorious over sin and death because of what Jesus has done for us. God, that sin is no longer our master. And Lord, I just pray that on a day like this, maybe it's the line in the sand moment where our lives start to look a whole lot more like your good son, Jesus. God, help us to live like Jesus did. God, thank you that he was willing to become human to show us how to truly be human. And I pray that you will allow us to live a life and you'll give us your spirit to help us live the life that you have called us to. Lord, we thank you for the cross. And God, I thank you that the death couldn't hold you. That when you walk out of the grave, you bring new humanness available to every single one of us again. Father, we love you.